Hello, my name is Niall Jefferson and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. The topic of this podcast is chronic rhinosinusitis and our guest expert is Associate Professor Richard Harvey. Professor Harvey completed training in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. He went on to perform fellowship training with Valerie Lund in the United Kingdom and then Rod Schlosser in the United States with some additional time in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He's widely published as both author and editor and has presented and taught nationally and internationally. He has a keen interest in nose, sinus, allergy and skull-based conditions, as well as a keen academic and research commitment. Thanks for joining us, Richard. My pleasure. We'll begin this uh, discussion by how do you go about defining chronic rhinosinusitis? So chronic rhinosinusitis is one of those big topics when it comes to rhinologists. And that's what I really think we are, you know, and my colleagues who do nose and sinus care only. It really is one of the things that we look after and it will probably occupy 50% of my practice. Um, It drives a lot of research, it affects a lot of patients in the population and can really range from being mild to very severe. When it comes to me, I have a very broad definition of chronic rhinosinusitis. I like to think of chronic sinus inflammation either being primary or secondary. This would be the very basis for my classification of rhinosinusitis. Secondary CRS is when we see upper airway and sinus inflammation that's secondary to a broader condition and pathology that's going on. Examples of this are cystic fibrosis. Now, cystic fibrosis does not just infect the lung, it affects the pancreas, the gastrointestinal tract, the whole lot of organs that are involved. It affects fertility as well. Other examples would be systemic vasculitic conditions, such as Schurk-Strauss, that this is a condition that affects other organs in the body. Patients with immunodeficiencies, they rarely present with sinus only. They will have skin, uh, respiratory tract, urinary tract problems as well. Um, And then perhaps when CRS is secondary to something else, so there's sinus inflammation to a fungal ball, an odontogenic mass, tumour in the sinuses, all of this is just merely inflammatory involvement of the paranasal sinus secondary to another event, and therefore it's secondary CRS. And we really don't have much problem in, in understanding and managing that condition, because often we understand that the predisposing underlying state is what's driven the inflammation. What is, though, challenging is managing primary CRS. And I think primary CRS is where the inflammation is confined to the respiratory tract. And I use that term rather than sinuses because many of the patients that we see with chronic rhinosinusitis have broader airway-wide or respiratory inflammatory disorders. That said, many people don't like breaking it up like that, but it has become popular elsewhere in the world, and I like that definition. So the rest of the talk really is about primary CRS, and it will occupy the bulk of patients that end up presenting to either a general otolaryngologist's office or rhinologist. The rarer forms are uncommon secondary CRS. Although we do screen for them, they're uncommon to see them in practice. So primary CRS to me, at the moment, in the way that we are managing sinus disease, is really broken into 
eosinophilic, chronic granulocytitis, and non-eosinophilic. Traditionally, we would have broken this up into polyps and non-polyps. But I think there's some acknowledgement here that when you use that just simple phenotype to break up disease, you're not very well classifying the underlying pathophysiologic and inflammatory process. In asthma literature, there is a big move now to stop talking about the phenotypes and to what we call endotype. This is when we have a patient, rather than just saying they're polyps and non-polyps, to say, what is the underlying process? Is it strongly eosinophilic? Or does it represent more common inflammation, such as neutrophilic response that we see with, with infection and inflammatory disorders um, that are traditionally associated with planktonic bacteria? So eosinophilic at the moment is really the primary thing that we can use. And there's a vast wealth of literature to support that concept. Eosinophilic patients present differently. They present with broader airway disease. They present with asthma. They have worse disease, it affects their overall quality of life, both local symptoms and disease-specific quality of life in a worse way. And most importantly, eosinophilic-dominated chronic granulocytitis does poorly from single modality treatments such as simple surgical intervention. And they have a much higher rate of recalcitrant disease and failure. So when I think of CRS now, if you said to me primary CRS, I really think of eosinophilic-dominated disease and non-eosinophilic because the presence of eosinophilia really at the moment with our limited understanding of what happens in TH2 inflammation is that it is a marker that something more has happened to that upregulated adaptive immune response than simply just infection. And I think that's why we currently probably break it into eosinophilic and non-eosinophilic. That's the current position statement for um, the American Rhinologic Society uh, and is mainly how they break it up. Um, in EPOS 2012, they still use polyps and non-polyps and broadly they do correlate with eosinophilia and non-eosinophilic disease. So, as you say, broadly we've got the principles of primary and secondary, focusing on primary eosinophilic and non-eosinophilic. With that in mind, if we take it a step further, what would you, how would you describe the etiological process that's driving this eosinophilic or non-eosinophilic state? Okay, I think we should probably focus on the eosinophilic because this is what ends up retaining the bulk of our care and time. I think patients who have functional areas of their sinuses involved in non-eosinophilic inflammation, by functional I mean you can link the pattern of disease that they have with some form of understanding of sinonasal physiology, such as the frontal antriethmoid and maxillary sinuses are all involved, or, or um, uh, one side is involved, or the, or the sphenoid is, and uh, ethmoid area is just involved. That, that these are where you think that there might be simple edema and osteal obstruction. I guess that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about eosinophilic disease where they classically present with diffuse inflammation. It's very patchy often with areas of normal mucosa on a CT scan and, and, and uh, an affected mucosa um, elsewhere. And it's really everywhere. It doesn't follow an anatomical pattern. Um, when I think of the pathophysiology, if I was asked now, when I was a resident, I learned this junk call term, 
He said, biofilms, osteitis, reflux, immunodeficiency, allergy, and he just dumped it all in and said, I don't know what it is. It's just all these things together. I think that shows a great deal of ignorance for what's happened in CRS um, research in the last 10 years. We, at least for me, for eosinophilic CRS and many of my colleagues, we understand that something has happened here to the normal mechanisms that prevent um, homeostasis at the mucosal level. So there is an innate immunity with the mechanical properties of mucosillary clearance which helps to provide normal mucosal function. And in eosinophilic CRS, there is an excessive feedback in which the innate system is driving a Th2 or even just simply an eosinophilic immune response. Um, David Chin, one of our recent fellows, published an article in Current Opinions um, that I'm sure will be uh, out within the next few months. And it really highlights, really in a simplistic form, the concept that the innate immunity in our, our patients with eosinophilic CRS is highly upregulated and it's driving elements of our immune system that is producing an eosinophilic response. Some of that eosinophilia is not in the typical way generated as eosinophilic disease. So we have this very basic understanding of Th2 um, immunity that naive T-cells are turned into Th2 T-cells that produce cytokines that then stimulate the bone marrow and eosinophils influx into the tissues. But the reality is that if this was really true, we wouldn't really see the very patchy nature of CRS, where often normal mucosa sits right next to eosinophilic mucosa. What we think is happening here in these tissues is that much of the early eosinophilic response is actually driven locally in the local mucosal tissue. And you don't need to have broad systemic and bone marrow involvement causing to diffuse eosinophilia. That the eosinophilia can be generated locally, and then once the eosinophilia is created in the tissues, the transmigration of eosinophils across into the sinus lumen with its breakdown, and all the other toxic and poisonous substances that are in an eosinophil, when they degrade and you get major basic protein, cationic protein, that all of these products end up causing epithelial erosion, ulceration, and then you are set up then to have chronic colonisation with fungus and bacteria. And even if you get rid of these local microbial flora, that with antibiotics, that unless the underlying inflammatory response is treated, the whole thing just starts up again. So this is our current understanding. We have this understanding based on our understanding of what asthma happens in asthma and what happens in eosinophilic dermatologic conditions, which is another example of an epithelial barrier in which we generate a strong eosinophilic or inflammatory response. At this stage, I think it's very important to acknowledge that bacteria do modulate the disease. So we see Staph aureus um, colonise our patients and make potentially the disease worse. Staph may act in superantigen ways to exacerbate the disease, but it's not really considered, even by researchers such as Klaus Backout, as being the cause. Same way, there are many papers on psoriasis and atopic dermatitis which have Staph colonised 
atopic dermatitis with severe disease. And many dermatologists and immunologists who treat atopic dermatitis know that if they treat their patients with anti-staph agents, it actually decreases the severity of the condition, but it never actually makes the underlying inflammatory process go away. And that once you stop the staph, they pick the staph back, the anti-staph agents, they pick the staph aureus up again from their armpits, from their dog, from their family members, and they recolonize. Unless the integrity of the epithelial barrier has been restored. So at the moment, this is our understanding. And the big question, though, is that, so why do some people's epithelial barrier of the sinus become failed and drive this adaptive immune response? Well, there's many theories to this, and it's not simply allergy. We believe that allergy probably um, is one of the predisposing factors. It might just be a, a marker for a common genetic predisposition. We believe that probably pollution in urban environments probably contributes as well in ways we don't understand, perhaps inducing what's called epigenetic defects in the mucosa. And then there is also a group of um, uh, researchers who have looked at cigarette smoke, and in the latest EPOS document there's information about the odds ratio of being a smoker and developing CRS. And then finally there is some researchers who believe that early exposure to severe viral infections such as respiratory syncytial virus before the age of two puts you at great risk of having asthma later on. I think the odds ratio is in the range of four to five, so quite high numbers. So it is possible that all these events come together as an adult and lead to this failed epithelial barrier which drives a pro-inflammatory immune response. And there is great difficulty in the body in regulating this inflammatory response once it gets going. So this is our current understanding, I believe, of CRS. It's an epithelial barrier disorder, like we see in asthma and in atopic dermatitis, and it all has to do with disordered inflammatory regulation, which many of it must be multiple hits to arrive at this point. And this perhaps explains why we don't see this disorder in children, and that is primarily a disease of adults. Having... Uh, having touched on the etiology when you see this uh, this patient for the first time talk us through the elements of the history so there are really really two things that I'd like to hear from sinus disease is that the patients have uh, affected smell and a little bit here we're going to talk about eosinophilic CRS so I acknowledge here we're talking about eosinophilic disease they've almost always have their smell affected patients who come in and say no I smell great they've rarely got inflammatory disease of their sinuses. And the other thing that commonly patients present with are flare-ups or exacerbations. They often seek out antibiotics all the time from their GP. And that's because they're chronically treating just a colonisation and an infective flare-up in their sinus without ever actually reducing and returning the sinus mucosa and the sinus system from its inflamed state back to an uninflamed state. And then, of course, that's the case. It flares up all the time. The same thing happens in children asthma. The child who gets recurrent infections four or five times a year and someone realises they actually have asthma and gives them a, a puffer and things settle down. So those two things I like to see. I do take histories to make sure that they um, don't have any of the secondary causes. And then I like then to talk to them about what are their predisposing factors. Are they a smoker? Do they have broad asthma? Do they have an ATP? Um, do they have family members who are involved? And all these paint a picture of someone who's developing airway inflammation as an adult. Um, it's very important that adult onset CRS is rarely associated with simple allergy as opposed to 
perhaps many airway symptoms in children, which is simple type 1 hypersensitivity. And so I do like to hear that story of sort of airway involvement. But I do go through and I take a history of all the common nasal symptoms, nasal blockage or obstruction, discharge, both anterior and posterior. The patient had never has anterior discharge, rarely has CRS, um, loss of smell and facial pressure and discomfort. The patient who comes to you and wants to talk about all about their facial pressure and headaches and ear symptoms rarely has CRS in my opinion. But of course, there's a big diversity and spectrum and patients do adapt to their condition over time. Sure. So they're the sort of key elements in, in history. Um, and as long as they have those, then I think that they're very likely going to have inflammatory sinus disease, whether my endoscopy is positive or not. So you've mentioned endoscopy. The physical examination, where does it start and finish? So physical examination, to me, um, is really simply an endoscopy and a CT scan. Um, unless I believe they've got secondary CRS, I don't think anything else needs to happen. Perhaps if they've got severe polypoid disease, you would ask them some um, clinical history and examination of their lower airway so that you're not missing untreated asthma. So an endoscopy, if an endoscopy is positive, so meaning that there is evidence of polyps or discharge, then it's almost certain that the scan will be positive. But a negative endoscopy doesn't mean that there's going to be the absence of inflammatory disease. So I almost always will organise a CT scan when I believe that this is what's going on. You mentioned CT scan. Are there any other investigations that you would routinely get in the patient with suspected CRS? Yeah, so primary CRS in patients who've never had treatment, haven't come to me from another doctor or ENT surgeon, I would not organise any blood tests. There's no blood tests in a patient who has essentially minimal or no asthma and presents with sort of mild polyps. Uh, I don't believe that anything's going to change your history there. That said, there are a few things that we do at the time of surgery, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, that, that does help me to sort of classify patients later on. But there's nothing early on. If you said to me, what do I do about patients who come to me who failed treatment, have had surgery or single modality approaches and aren't doing well, I will do a, a range of tests which include a full blood count, really with a differential, to look for signs of systemic eosinophilia. I also do some form of systemic inflammatory marker, such as an ESR or a CRP, and that's to look for a broader inflammatory disorders within the body. I will do a RAST test to look for fungal um, antigens, um, so I can diagnose the subgroup of AFS. I do a total IgE, because patients with high IgEs in the thousands often have some form of staph superinfection going on. Um, and then finally, um, in patients who have seen someone else who failed previous treatments, I will screen them for eosinophilic inflammatory conditions such as Schirk-Strauss mm. using an anchor screen. But that's really all that needs to happen in the polypoid sort of suspected eosinophilic patient with asthma. I don't think that uh, any other tests really play a role. So you've completed your physical examination, your investigations, you've come to the diagnosis of uh, CRS de novo, untreated previously. What is your medical management paradigm for this patient? I'm glad you asked me this, because I hate the concept of medical management followed by surgical management. To me, this is a flawed concept. Um, patients who have 
polypoid or eosinophilic CRS do not have medical and surgical management. This is, there's no hierarchy here. To me, it is all about a condition that is going to be a chronic condition in these patients, and the direction of care should really be towards what is whether they're controlled using systemic treatment, and if they're not, then they need to shift to local treatment. There is very little evidence that simple nasal sprays offer great help for patients with polyp disease. If you've got active polyps and asthma, simply putting nasonex into your nasal airway and cavity, you may shrink your polyps a little bit, you may get some help, but it's rarely going to affect the actual sinus mucosa from where these polyps come from and the course of the disease. The effect size on meta-analysis and using steroids, intranasal steroids in unoperated patients um, who have eosinophilic disease is tiny and negligible. And there's many trials which show that it's no different from using placebo. So when it comes to treating CRS, I offer patients, I first of all will swab whatever pus is growing in their sinuses, and usually that's just a secondary event, and I will give them a course of oral steroids. We usually give steroids for about three weeks, and we will decolonize their nose with some antibiotics at this time. If there's no pus, if they just present with polyps, then I don't give them antibiotics. I just give them steroid. There's a lot of debate. Many patients come with, from GPs with just four days of steroids here and there. This is not appropriate. It's thought that if you're going to give a course of oral steroids, you need to give it over about three weeks. This, cor this corresponds roughly with the lifespan of an eosinophil in the tissue. And you need to apply a significant suppression of the eosinophilic immune response during that time period. There is no way that there will be any form of restoration of the epithelial barrier and repair if you were giving courses of six or 12 or 10 days of steroids. So we usually give three weeks um, of oral steroids. Uh, I do give patients a salt water irrigation just to manage the mucus in their nose. And they can use a nasal steroid spray for whatever it's worth to manage it. And antibiotics are optional, depending on whether they have pus coming out. If someone has that treatment, Noel, and they say that they are good, and they remain good for months and months and months, I'm happy to repeat that two or three times a year without antibiotics usually, because the concept here is that they're not getting recurrent infective flare-ups. If you can give someone oral steroid a couple of courses a year, that is a very acceptable way of managing CRS. And in the current EPOS 2012 documents, this is the cutoff point, two courses a year for considering control. And that's a very acceptable way. And you are managing this person's inflammatory condition by reducing their inflammatory burden using systemic treatment in this way. If the patient fails miserably after a week of stopping the steroid treatment, they're back to where they were, or they have persistent symptoms, or they don't last long enough that they, they're asking, they're coming back asking for more courses of oral steroid. A point comes in which you need to talk to them about shifting their care from using systemic treatments and delivering the medical therapy from into their sinuses via their bloodstream to delivering it on a more regular basis in a local fashion. And the rationale for this approach is to avoid the systemic absorption and side effects of recurrent treatment. The other part of this is that you want to maintain long-term eosinophilic inflammatory suppression 
and that will enable restoration of the epithelial barrier and prevent the recurrent infective flare-ups that occur in our patients. So to me, this is how I manage CRS. It is about shifting from requiring systemic treatments to really providing local treatment. And that dictates how I approach uh, these patients. When, we, uh, when you have given your course of steroids, for example, they come back, they've failed miserably, at what point do you consider surgery? And when you consider surgery, what surgery do you have in mind? Okay. So if we come back, if the patient presents me with diffuse disease, polyps, they've never had surgery before, they're symptomatic, if they say that the steroids, Richard, they were great, I was feeling so good, but about four weeks after finishing, I feel like I'm pretty crumbing up back to baseline. And especially if they have an infective flare-up almost within the next three months, then I consider them a failure. If they do well for long term, I'm happy just to give a couple of courses, as we discussed. When they don't do well, and then I'm asked to talk to them about how do I manage my condition tighter. That's what the patients want to know. Just like an asthmatic wants to know, how am I going to manage my airway inflammation in a much more tighter way so that I don't suffer from symptoms and I don't get infective flare-ups? In this situation, I talk to them about surgery. The surgery to me is not about polyp removal. Surgery to me is about um, carefully providing the patient an operation that is going to allow them to locally look after their sinuses. Obstruction, osteomyoidal disease, this is not a concept that applies to eosinophilic or polypoid CRS. There's no doubt that we see focal osteomyoidal complex disease and patients present because of focal OMC obstruction, but OMC obstruction, osteobstruction, is not a concept that applies to CRS. There are two papers recently, one by Rick Chandra, who showed that radiologically, in patients with and without polyps, there was absolutely no association of radiological occlusion of the OMU unit with the pattern of disease in those associated sinuses, and we thought that was a fantastic paper, and we repeated it because we actually had the eosinophilic data and showed that not only was it true in our polyp patients, but it was even more true if you classified patients by degree of eosinophilia um, as part of their condition. So there's really no approach in my mind to talk about osteal obstruction in CRS with polyps. That's not to say that these patients don't develop secondary obstructive problems. So I think once it gets very edematous and they get all this hypersecretory mucus, they get trapping of mucus in sinuses, sure, that's a problem for them, but it's not the cause. And it's not why we really intervene. So when it comes to doing an operation then for them, if they've got diffuse disease on a CT scan after maximum medical therapy, I will often just open every single sinus in one go. I don't think you should do that if you're not confident in getting a good result. And I think that you should do a sphenoethmoidectomy, do it comprehensively. You must acknowledge that when you go through the basal lamella, you must address every single partition. You don't half do the ethmoid cavity and leave behind compartments and potential for mucus trapping and recirculation. You must always address the entire functional compartment when you enter it. But I would do a complete sphenoethmoidectomy and in my hands, if you have frontal involvement after maximum medical therapy, then you get the frontal addressed as well. And there's really only two treatments I do. I do that and I do that with a low throb. And the purpose of doing this sort of surgery is to set the patient up with a new remodeled paranasal sinus cavity that they can then look after with a topical steroid irrigation 
afterwards. And that's what we do in the post-operative period. We transition them to using topical steroid irrigations. They remain on that for quite some time. No one stops it um, earlier than six months using it every single day. And in those patients who have normal smell, normal mucosa, I do talk to them about playing around with it, using it every other day. And you can usually get a good mojo from your patients whether they're going to have a success from this treatment and how often they're going to need this treatment. Because traditionally, they one, they will have a response to oral steroids. The ones who don't respond to oral steroids are a worry. Um, the second one is that you look at their lower airway. If they have minimal airway disease in their, in their lung, and or they rarely need to treat their lower airway, you're probably going to get them under control very easily. And if they need to use oral steroids to control their lung, and they use inhalers every single day or twice a day for their lung, then it's almost teleologically sense that that's probably what can be the case in the upper airway. And so that gives you a guide as to what sort of patient they're going to need, how well you're going to control them locally. You, you mentioned certainly the steroid component of your post-operative care, and you've mentioned previously about using uh, sinus irrigation uh, just twice a day. Um, I presume sinus irrigation is an important part of your ongoing management. Are there, is that the case? And are there any other adjuncts that you add in typically? Yeah, no, absolutely. Simple saline is not, no, it doesn't cut it. So in my mind, you have to provide these patients with an anti-inflammatory treatment. Saline, though, is not a placebo treatment. So there is, there is evidence that after you do this surgery, which creates a new single sinus cavity, it's mucosally preserving, you are removing a lot of partitions, so in, in essence you're actually decreasing the mucosal surface area that reduces inflammatory burden. Um, you're also setting the patient up so they can wash out the hypersecreted mucus that is often sitting inside the sinuses. And that mechanical clearance of that eosinophilic, remember this contains a milieu of inflammatory and um, uh, erosive agents to the epithelium, washing it out actually improves outcomes. And not just patient-perceived outcomes, but actually biochemical features of the disease. So I think there's good sense for using saline irrigation, but usually an anti-inflammatory has to be provided. Now, when people ask me about how do I get steroid topically into the sinuses, it's not about just using a wash. So you don't just take a patient with polyps and half-done sinus cavity and give them a wash. That rarely works. Certainly doesn't work in the pre-operative situation. And you don't just do a huge, big, wide sinus operation and then put them on a, a 100 microliter spray. This will never topicalize the sinus cavity properly. So at the moment, and this may change in years to come, but at the moment, creating a single sinus cavity, doing a complete, what we call in Australia, full house fest, and then providing the steroid delivery in the saline irrigation is very effective. Some of our published work shows that in 93% of the patients who end up in my clinic, we get topical control. So taking this approach, we can shift them from using steroid and other antibiotics to using local topical treatment to control their disease. So we're not magicians. There's still patients who fail, 7%, and if you want to throw in a couple of percent, we've lost a follow-up. If you assumed all they failed, there's certainly a group of patients who fail treatment. But it's very different from when I was a resident when we were just told patients you have surgery go away you just need to come back and have surgery in a couple of years time and the reality is that while that sounds appealing to the surgeon uh, that they'll just come back and have their redo polypectomy unfortunately that patient is rarely symptom free for that two or three years they usually are symptom free for about three months while the polyps are out and that they've had some oral steroids from the surgeon 
during the operation and that is that the shift to healing immune response in the nose temporarily suppresses the eosinophilic response and then at about three months that bam they're back to exactly the miserable state they were they usually like that for about two years until they're absolutely terrible and then they go back and see the surgeon and say please take my polyps out and he says i told you we'll do this every two years and that's really not a terrific approach for someone with active disease and so this is why we have this approach now rather than at the traditional polypectomy approach of yesteryear. Uh, what would be your routine follow-up timeline for these patients? Yeah, so I see patients in one week to take out their glove spacer. Uh, I see them in three weeks, and usually they're still taking oral steroid during that period. And then at three weeks, depending on how they look and some of their disease factors, uh, they've already started their steroid wash, and then they come off their steroid slowly, and they remain on their topical. And we shift them from systemic to topical care. I see them at three months. And then I usually will see them again three months after that. And then I see them either every three months or six months over the next couple of years. Once patients get the real mojo on how to handle their sinuses, then I leave them to manage on their own. And I've got a bunch of patients who use their steroid. The minute they feel a bit of mucus in their nose, they usually use their steroid wash more commonly. Uh, frequently I should say and they settle their condition down they don't have to do much but actually most of the patients who come to my clinic they have such a miserable state beforehand that even if after six months we begin to wind their steroid down and we have a large group who just use their steroid wash twice or three times a week I rarely can get them off it because they understand and appreciate what it's like to have good sinus function and normal smell and that they're very reluctant to sort of come off wash altogether and this is very similar to an asthmatic who has bad lung disease and maybe like a chronic cough and knows that if they don't have their empirical or prophylactic treatment they're coughing all the time and so they keep it going even in the mild cases okay look this certainly represents a uh, a, a complex disease process uh, both in its uh, understanding and certainly the management of it Having said that, I think you've outlined a reasonably simple management process, which sounds very successful. Before we finish, I'll give you the option to have the opportunity to have the final word. This may represent something we've mentioned already that you feel uh, needs to be highlighted, or it may be something that we haven't discussed. So I'll hand it over to you. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I was keen to say one more thing and say that much of our discussion today has been about eosinophilic airway inflammation the asthmatics and polyp patients. This occupies a lot of my practice, but it probably doesn't for the general otolaryngologist. The general otolaryngologist would not see these severe patients. Maybe they might make up 10 or 15% of the CRS patients, but they are the challenging group. So when it comes to non-eosinophilic CRS, the concepts of local edema, osteoobstruction, impaired mucociliary function, bacterial colonization, even in the form of planktonic or biofilm bacteria, are probably far more important and some of the more traditional teachings on functional endoscopic sinus surgery apply very well here and I think that there's probably a lot of rationale for some of the um, simple FEST techniques, um, stools, things like saline irrigations, antibiotic treatments, um, these play a role in non-polypoid disease um, very well and many of these patients won't have asthma and other broader airway conditions so it's just to highlight that our discussion was very much about that subpopulation, 
not the broader patients who have simply CRS after having a cold for many months and need some treatment to settle down. Excellent. Well, thanks, Richard. Um, Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Uh, Please look for other ENT Expert Opinion podcast titles, and we can be contacted via email on entexpertopinion at gmail.com.